Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. It's been exactly two years since musicians and performers around the world had to cancel shows and put tours on hold in an effort to curb the fast spread of COVID-19. When faced with the prospect of months without live music, Atlanta musicians Andy Gish and Kim Ware channeled their performance void into a Facebook group devoted to virtual house concerts. The group, Kimono My House, has since swelled to almost 8,000 members. And next weekend, They'll hold their first-ever live in-person music festival. Later this hour, City Light senior producer Kim Drobe sits down with Kish and Ware to find out more about the group first. When you hear that music, it's time for Jeopardy! Well, one Kennesaw State University senior just finished competing in Jeopardy!'s National College Championship. On February 22nd, Raymond Goslow made it to the final round and walked away with the second-place title and a $100,000 consolation prize. He joins us now via Zoom. Raymond, congratulations on your achievement and welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much, I'm glad to be here. I'm curious to know about your history with the show. Did you grow up watching Jeopardy? Yeah, so basically, I don't remember a life without Jeopardy as early as I can remember, as young as I can remember. My dad was recording the episodes with Ken Jennings on the DVR, and so it's very much something that's just always been a part of my life. I haven't always watched it like every single night. There have been periods where I watch it all the time and periods where I don't watch it so much, but it's always one way or another been there for me to come back to. Oh, what did your family and friends think? when you told them you were signing up to compete? 
So it was a really long process from when I first applied to be on the show to finally getting on. It was um, over a year between my first test that I took and finally getting to be on the show. So when I told people that I was um, auditioning, they were very excited. They told me, you know, you'll definitely be on the show. They gave me a lot of support like that. And then later after I had taped my episodes and I could go back home and tell people I'm going to be on the show, they were all, everyone was really excited for me and uh, assumed that I would do well, basically. Oh, so exciting. What was the application process? You mentioned a test. You landed as one of the top 36 competitors of the nation, all across the nation. Yeah, so there were many steps to the process. I took a test on the Jeopardy website, which I could take at any time. They just pulled questions from a test bank. And then after passing that, they invited me to take a test over Zoom. And that was basically the same thing, but they proctored it, watched me with the camera to make sure I wasn't looking up the answers. (laughs) (laughs) Imagine that scandal. I know, I know. And then after passing that, they invited me to do an audition over Zoom, where I basically played a little mock version of the game, held up a pen and pretended to buzz in, called out category numbers, you know, this category for $200. And then just talked a little bit about myself, my history, my personality, stuff like that. And then that was the information that they used to decide whether they wanted me on the show. Hmm. I have spoken with panelists on NPR's news quiz show, the popular Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. And they've spoken about preparing for their weekly show, which usually involves just immersing themselves in the week's news. But how do you even begin to prepare for the questions that could be asked on Jeopardy? So there's a really useful website that uh, many people use to prepare for Jeopardy. It's called jarchive.com. It's j-archive.com. And it has pretty much all the questions and answers that have ever been used on Jeopardy. And you can just scroll through and get a really good feel for the kinds of topics that are on Jeopardy, the things that they ask, common answers, all of that. So I use that a lot to prepare just by looking through old college championship games to get an idea of the specific difficulty level and topics that would be in the uh, college championship. But besides that, I didn't really do much focused preparation because I knew there were so many topics that could possibly be covered. I figured that the best thing for me to do was just trust that if I was good enough to get on the show, I had the knowledge I already needed and just to not stress myself out with cramming more information into my head. That was a smart decision because indeed it requires a well-rounded knowledge of many different categories. You beat out some competitors from Ivy League schools. I saw Cornell, Dartmouth, and Harvard. Did those school affiliations of some of the other competitors intimidate you? I didn't really make much of a connection between the people themselves and the schools, because when I got there, I got to know them personally. We all got to stay in the same hotel and spend time with each other in the studio while we weren't filming. So I didn't really make the connection of, wow, that person is from Harvard. They're intimidating. I just got to know them as as people. (laughs) That is 
a great attitude, and it's wonderful to hear how familial the atmosphere was among the competitors. Kennesaw State University is a relatively new university. It doesn't have widespread national recognition yet. How did you feel representing KSU? So by representing KSU in this tournament, I didn't just represent KSU, but I think I represented other similar schools across the country. Pretty much all of the schools in this tournament were private schools or flagship public schools. And I think of all of them, Kennesaw State was the only one that would be considered like a a lesser known state school. So it felt not just like I was representing KSU specifically, but everyone across the country who is taking that path for their education. I also went to community college before I transferred to KSU. And I've had a non-traditional path in that I was working full-time for a lot of college. So I really felt like I was representing all the people who took a non-traditional path through college. And that, that felt really cool. A little bit of pressure, but really cool to make sure that those people had a voice and a representation in this tournament. Oh, and look how you did them all proud. Yes. During the final round on February 22nd, I read KSU hosted a watch party, which you attended. You already knew the outcome. How did you feel watching the finals with your Kennesaw family? Already knowing the outcome made me a little nervous because I knew that as opposed to my previous games that I wanted to get in the finals, I didn't win this game. And so I was worried a little that I was going to let people down, especially when in the first game, I went into final jeopardy in third place. But the energy in the room was just amazing. They had the campus radio station and cheerleaders and all of that. And everyone was just so supportive. And towards the end, when I went on like a really good streak and got like six high value answers in a row, just the atmosphere was so electric with people excited to see me making that comeback. So it was just an incredible atmosphere. And I'm very thankful to KSU for putting that event on. Well, and it's not like you let anyone down. You walked away with this second place prize, $100,000. Have you thought about what you want to do with your winnings? My number one priority with the winnings is making sure that I sort out the taxes correctly because oh. I, <laughs> I won the money in California. So there's California tax, I'm in Georgia, so there's Georgia tax, and then there's federal tax. So I want to make sure that I don't get the IRS coming after me. <laughs> after that, depending on where my life goes in the next few months, I might put it towards like a down payment on a house, or I may just invest it to have a nice thing to fall back on for the future. You are a senior majoring in geospatial science at KSU. What are your plans after graduation, Raymond? So I actually graduated in December. It was an interesting timeline. I taped this tournament in November, back when I still was a senior, and then graduated in December. And so now that when the tournament's airing, I've actually already graduated. And so right now I I work for Cobb County Public Library. I work in the back offices doing a lot of data analysis and helping the administration of the library make decisions. And I'm 
very content in that job and happy to stay there for a while. Oh, that's wonderful. And wouldn't you know, you're working with a repository of knowledge, <laughs> just as your repository of knowledge helped so much with advancing to the second place prize for the Jeopardy College Championship. Exactly. What advice would you give someone who wants to compete on Jeopardy? I think what really helped me get to be on the show was just a positive attitude towards life in general, because that makes you want to absorb all the information and knowledge you can, just realizing that there's so much knowledge in the world and you'll never learn all of it, but just to be really excited to learn a little more of it each day. And so that will help you get the knowledge you need. And then just that positive attitude will really come across in audition and make the producers feel like, you know, this is a person who would really look good on TV, be good for our show. So it helps in both aspects. Raymond Goslow, as a senior at Kennesaw State University, he was a finalist in the Jeopardy National College Championship Tournament, earning the second place prize of $100,000. Raymond wasn't the only Georgia student in the tournament. Claire Jackson from Spelman College and Elijah Odenade from the University of Georgia both competed in the first round. In a moment, we'll get a little twisted and hear about the recipes of Atlanta chef Deborah Van Treese in the Twisted Soul Cookbook, Modern Soul Food with Global Flavors. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights. It's great to have you along. Soul food and Southern cooking collide with international cuisines in the Twisted Soul Cookbook, Modern Soul Food with Global Flavors by Chef Deborah Van Trees. The book named after Vantrice's first Atlanta restaurant, brings international influences and a unique approach to the already diverse array of American soul food traditions. When Chef Vantrice joined me via Zoom last summer, 
She explained why it's incorrect to presume that soul food exists in a fixed place and time. It's incorrect because we don't stay stagnant. You know, we continue as people to evolve and that's, that's all people. And so it just makes sense that our food evolves also. We're not, you know, living in ancient times. You know, there's things that even take place that, you know, weren't as prevalent before. You know, we do have mixed culture marriages and, and same sex marriages. And, you know, with that, our families are becoming so diverse within themselves. So is our food. And that's the point that I'm trying to make in this cookbook. Why is regional cuisine important to soul food? Well, I think people have the idea or have had the idea that soul food is, is just like a bubble. It's one thing. And it's not. It is definitely influenced by the region. African-Americans, you know, came here and they were place in the South for the most part. But as the world, the country evolved, they started migrating up into Northern states, different areas, moving around. And so did the cuisines of, of those places or the produce, the things that were available to them. And so they adapted and they utilized ingredients that were you know, local for wherever they ended up being. And so Soul food is not just one type of food. There's different variations, there's different combinations, and a lot of that depends upon where actually you live. And it's important to know that. It's important to know that we all, because we look similar, we're not. We are a very diverse group of people, if you're looking at it from an African-American standpoint, and so is our food, so is our cuisine. Reading what you wrote about that in the Twisted Soul cookbook brought back about four years ago, my family and I visited the Smithsonian National Museum of African American History, mm-hmm. and the dining area was its own cultural experience and had just what you talked about. There were different food stations for each region of the country. Have you been there? No, I haven't. And I now am extremely excited about my upcoming visit. I plan on going this summer. But no one has ever told me that. And I find that really, really incredible. I can't wait to go. (laughs) It's fantastic. And so... Four of us were visiting the museum. I was the only one who stayed in the southern region. I mean, that fried chicken looked just so amazing. But (laughs) reading the important points you make about regional influence, that our cuisines are response to where we reside and, and what's available, and those cultural traditions, it just brought back that vivid memory of visiting the museum and a wonderful lunch. Would you explain how building upon basic recipes 
at once expands the repertoire, but also upholds the tradition of soul food. Yes. The soul food that I, I grew up with, you know, it was wholesome. It was delicious. It was something that I craved for sometimes when I, I went away and I came back home. As food and food systems have, have changed, you know, so has some of my ideas and my concepts. The basic food that I was given is absolutely delicious, but I think that we, you know, have an obligation to experiment with it, know where it comes from, know that, you know, your grandfather made this amazing gumbo and he added this, this, and that, but also open up your eyes to all of the things that are available to you now that he may not have had access to. We have more accessibility than what our ancestors did. And it's great to be able to build upon the basis that they gave to us and still utilize some of the, the things that we have access to that they didn't and things that you know, are being produced that now are, are new things, or we've got beautiful heirloom tomatoes, you know, we are doing cross-pollination of, of certain things, flowers and veggies, and they're fun. And why not use them and encourage future generations as food does continue to evolve to also build on those recipes. You never want to lose sight of where they came from, how they were produce out of strife sometime, out of necessity. You know, now a lot of times we're, do we're doing it just cause it tastes good yes. and we're having fun with it. And so, you know, like let's open up our eyes and just be as creative as we possibly can, but still understand where that tradition came from. I'm glad you brought up the heirloom tomato because I am not saying this to flatter, but the fried green tomatoes you serve at the Twisted Soul restaurant, that's the gold standard. Oh, why, thank you. Do you grow those yourself? No, nope. And sometimes we have a hard time sourcing them. Mm. But there are a couple of local farmers that are pretty consistent with the availability. So we try to get them as much as possible from the local farmers. Um, now in the summer, yes, you will find, you know, I have a garden that's full of tomatoes and, and actually have now been trying to think, could we play with a green cherry tomato oh my. and do some type of, of, you know, similar recipe with them, you know, where they're little poppers or something of that nature. <laughs> but yeah, it's very important for us to start with the good product. And so, yeah, we're very picky about the green tomatoes that we pick. Mm. Let's talk about the layout of this cookbook. What are your different takes on these soul food recipes? You have basically three parts to the book. There's a lot going on because it's definitely globally inspired. The recipes, a lot of them I talk about, I think the cast-offs, the throwaways and the cast-offs. And those are the things that I vividly remember as a child that we found in pots quite often, turkey necks, neck bones, things that were wholesome, but were inexpensive 
because no one wanted to eat them. And the idea that there were a group of people who came and made this deliciousness out of what was considered trash is very inspiring for me. And it's also what is trendy now when we take a look at the sustainability movement and being able to, if you're going to sacrifice an animal, understand you want to use as much of that as possible and not be so wasteful. It wasn't something that I discovered that was just a part of African-American cuisine. I found places all over the world as I traveled that reflected some of those same throwaways and cast-offs, and there were recipes for that in their culture also. So I've got a little bit of that going on. And then just the realization that in, in some places, what we may consider in the United States to be just comfort, just easy, simple food, somewhere else is a very upscale type of ingredient or upscale dish. And I wanted to show that relationship also. And then have fun with some desserts and have fun with what I call some necessities in the cookbook. I think dessert is a necessity. <laughs> Excuse me for interrupting Chef Deborah. I think so too, which is so funny because as I get older, I think it's more of a necessity. I don't know yes. what, what about getting older and just a little something sweet, just a little something has become a very important part of my, my daily experiences, believe me. If you've just tuned in, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes speaking with Chef Deborah Van Trees. What you mentioned about realizing that many of the economical ingredients were included in early soul recipes yes. by necessity, although they were flavorful and delicious. And then in your travels, both as a flight attendant and later in traveling around the world on your own, you realize, oh my, this whole nose-to-tail movement that we hear about has really existed in France, in Italy, in China. Yes. There's this commonality yes. of why it's wise to use as much of the animal as possible. Exactly. And, and how, with a fancy French name, suddenly it becomes very elegant sounding. Would you talk about your recipe for a particular pate early in the cookbook? Yes. There's a few things along the line of pate that I talk about. There's an oxtail riette that we, we did in the cookbook. We did a hoghead cheese, which is something that now I'm kind of focused on a little bit because I find it funny that there's discussion on aspic, the idea of aspic dishes coming back. And I laughed to myself and thought they never left. Hoghead cheese is considered really some trash, some pretty country cooking here <laughs> in the United States. But you go to Germany, you go to France, and it definitely is a delicacy. 
pate. It's, you know, just a traditional pate. When you really sit and put it together, it's really a fancy meatloaf, you know, if you think about it, you know, and the ingredients that are put in a pate are really kind of some cast off and throwaway ingredients combined with fresh herbs and great flavor and with a cute name, pate. I think at, at some point food was used as status. And I feel as we evolve that the world is understanding that, you know what, it's really not that serious. Good food is just good food all the way around. And yes, there are some things that continue to be extremely expensive, our caviars, our, our truffles. But like even in Russia, you know, I've spent some time in Russia at one point and they would trade some caviar for a pair of Levi jeans in a heartbeat. <laughs> it's so common there, you know? So I think people take a step back and, and really just understand good food is good food, no matter where you're at no matter what name you give to it, it's good food. Why is soul food compatible with the sustainability movement? I think because it really comes from sustaining. Slaves were trying to, to take care of themselves, take care of their family. Most African-American diets back when, when slaves were brought here, they didn't get very much in terms of meats and like I said it was cast offs. It was very much a high vegetable diet that they had. Meats were kind of used then for flavors and seasonings, then every now and then special occasions. But the the thought behind it, the creativity behind just every little thing, you know, so that you you didn't starve, so that your family didn't starve. And coming to the table and eating was a bit of a fellowship, some downtime. Those slaves learned how to take those things, all those things, chicken gizzards, livers, turkey necks, pork neck bones, you know, pork intestines, and make delicious food from it. And that is really what sustainability now is about. It always has been. And I think it's it's not just about the African-American culture. It is about all people all over the world who didn't have a lot. And they learned in their own ways to use their own spices all over to take that, you know, from nose to tail yeah. and figure out something to do with it. I love your description of coming to the table together as an act of fellowship. Yes. It's, it's a beautiful way to think about how we share food. It's very important. And for me, I can't say, oh, I grew up poor. I grew up okay. But it was very important even within my family to come together bring what you have and come together and share and fellowship. Mm. You mentioned Russia. We've talked about French and Italian influence. And in your book, you also acknowledge Israeli dishes, Argentinian food. I'm going to circle back a little. In what 
way was your experience as a chef during the 1996 Olympic Games a turning point in your career? When I was traveling to all these places and actually got an opportunity to live in a few of the spaces, I was learning, I was absorbing, not realizing that at that time I would become a chef because I was a flight attendant. I was a flight attendant who just loved food and loved learning about it. But it was never in my parameters at that moment to consider the possibility that I would utilize this down the road as a chef. You know, just wanted to learn how to cook and understand the culture and and just enjoy the people. When the Olympics came to Atlanta, that was like my kind of first experience as being an executive chef. I fell into a position pretty much out of culinary school. I did a lot of work with the consulates and realized, you know, depended upon all of those experiences, knowing how to make an authentic paella. So when the Spanish consulate was here, I can make you paella and you're going to call me out to see who is this back here and how has she learned? How does she know how to do this so well? It was the things that they didn't come from a cookbook. They came from firsthand experience because I did not just go into restaurants and eat. I went into homes. These were places I had lived. Same with the French consulate, you know, same with the German consulate. There was few, I had to do a little bit of research, you know, because I, I did get an opportunity even to, to feed the Canadian prime minister at, at a particular event. And most of them, they wanted a taste of the South, but they also wanted something, you know, that made them feel good, made them feel comfortable, made them feel at home. So it was such an honor to be able to present, you know, some of these national dishes to the people who have grown up eating it and get such a positive response from them. Yeah. And ultimately, how did that lead you to a broader definition of soul food? It just all kind of clicked into place that we all have some version of that. You know, we all have a version of soul food. We all have something that touches our soul. The African-American cuisine, they put the name soul on their food. And it really came at a point during more of the civil rights movement when there was so much that was being said to uplift the Black people, to uplift them. And the food was just one of the things. And so it was named soul food. It's a deeper definition than just a particular type of cuisine. It's really, to me, a cuisine that touches your heart and touches your soul. And I think every culture deep down has that. Every person has it. I don't care if it's a hot dog. There's something that you've had as a kid. It could be a peanut butter sandwich. It could be grandma's tuna noodle casserole, but it made you feel good. And as an adult, you will always connect that food, that dish, with home, with something that makes you feel good. And that to me is what soul food should do. Chef Deborah Van Trees, 
discussing the Twisted Soul Cookbook, Modern Soul Food with Global Flavors. Chef Fantrice is on track to open not one but two new restaurants in Atlanta this year, Serenidad and Aretha's at the Point are both highly anticipated. The first will serve up elevated Latin soul food, while the latter will focus on global comfort food dishes inspired by moms around the world. Coming up, an Atlanta-based Facebook group that offered virtual house concerts during the pandemic brings their community together in person for the first Kimono My House Music Festival. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. In March of 2020, musicians and performers all around the world had to cancel shows and put tours on hold in an effort to curb the fast spread of COVID-19. When faced with the prospect of months without live music. Atlanta musicians Andy Gish and Kim Ware channeled their performance void into a Facebook group devoted to virtual house concerts. The group, Kimono My House, has since swelled to almost 8,000 members. And next weekend, They'll hold their first-ever live in-person music festival. City Light senior producer Kim Drobes caught up with Gish and Ware recently. Here, Ware talks about the origins of the group and their unusual name. It started on March 13, 2020, and that was, I think, for a lot of us in Atlanta the day that things began to shut down and I had Mm -hmm. gotten off work early because we were amongst that like all right everyone go home um not sure when we'll be back but we'll keep you posted (laughs) and I was at home just you know hanging out on my porch and I saw Andy had posted something that she was looking to start something so Atlanta area musicians could stay connected because she had several shows that were canceled. And I just happened to have the time to give that some thought at that moment. So I was like, hey, why don't we start like a Facebook group and then we can perform for each other over Facebook Live. So it was that quickly that we did that. (laughs) You know, it was just that afternoon. We were like, okay, let's try it, you know. Both of us performed there pretty quickly. We started inviting a few friends. They invited more friends. And it just really took off really quickly. And we were thinking it would be, you know, maybe just something, maybe maybe 20 or 30 friends would be into. And we also thought maybe a few weeks we'll need to do this. (laughs) But obviously Mm. you see where we are now. But as far as the name, that was one of the core, like, initial people that we invited, David Mampowski, 
he he just threw threw the name out there. It just it looked neat. We liked how it you know it kind of sounds like come on over to my house um, if you just like say it really quickly you know and it just it seemed to fit just the the fun vibe of it too. So we we went with that. When Lois asked me, well, what does that name mean? I just said, well, it's kind of what we all sound like when we're leaving a show and you want to still hang out with your friends and you just say, come on over to my house. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. So So Kim, you mentioned that Andy had some shows already lined up that got canceled because of the pandemic. You are also a musician. Did your life kind of get sidetracked because of the pandemic as well? Were you planning on playing out much? Yeah, it did. I had released an album just several months prior And we were honestly really excited to play out a good bit that year to support the album. But yeah, everything changed really quickly. Well, what an incredible outlet you two have created, not just for yourselves, but for literally thousands of other musicians. Andy, tell me, when did the idea come up to gather in person and actually throw a festival? Pretty early on, we wanted to do that you know, we kept putting, having to put it off for months and months and now years. It blows my mind that it's been two years. You know, we did a festival for the East Atlanta strut with several bands from Kimono My House. Um, And that was kind of like a little tester for what this would be. How did it go? Oh, it was awesome. It was great. It was nice to see everybody in person. There were people who were meeting each other for the first time. Mm -hmm. And that's always really interesting because Kimono My House has like we've made new friends, we've made new connections, there have been new bands or people who used to play or playing again, or artists that are brand new are playing regular shows now. And that is amazing. Like to me, that all of that came out of this time when we've been so separated and things have been so dark for many of us. It's amazing to see that come out of this. You mentioned that you had put together a showcase for the East Atlanta Strut, What you're doing coming up next weekend is such a grander endeavor. What is it like throwing together a festival that includes this many artists in multiple venues? Oh, (laughs) I can hear your headache right now. It's crazy. It's a lot. I mean, it is a lot. It's compounded by the pandemic stuff. You know, that just adds a whole additional layer of complexity to planning anything right now. But we started like in earnest really planning it back in August, which was kind of weird because I've noticed we don't plan things near as much in advance. At least I don't as compared to how I used to. But it's necessary, you know, to pull off something like this. But it, it, it was a little bit weird to be thinking of March um, as far back as August. <laughs> right. And you're working with multiple venues. Are there different COVID restrictions for each one? Or do you have a unifying guideline that people can adhere to? Yeah, we set the guidelines for that. And the venues generally are letting the artists do that. And so our guidelines are vaccinated or a negative test within 72 hours. Great. And so let's talk about some of the performers you guys have coming up. I'm laughing because there are so many. If I could (laughs) just rattle off a few, 
We have Nerd Queen, Chicken and Pigs, All Night Drug Prowling Wolves, Black Fox, Kenny Howe and the Wow, Mudcat, Virginia Plain, your band, The Yum Yum Tree, Andy, your band, Kim, The Good Graces, The Preakness is playing. It is a wonderful lineup, and I wish... We could take time to talk about everyone, but let's try to zero in on a few. And if you don't mind, I'd like to start with your headliner, Adron, because as much as she means to you, she means as much to City Light. She is a very special person in our lives because she does all of the web writing for City Lights, aside from being an amazingly talented musician. I feel like even just the first time I asked Adron to play on Kimono My House, I told Kim, I was like, I'm going to ask her. (laughs) I knew she was far away. And that was one of the things some people who had left Atlanta played on Kimono My House. And it was really nice to reconnect with those people. And I was so surprised that she said yes. But if you see her first performance, she's very honest and very vulnerable. And she says, you know, this sucks and I'm trying not to think about it and I'm going to play you some music. And then it's like she turns the charm up to 11 (laughs) and plays these amazing songs. So she was starting her Patreon at the same time um, to help support her art. So I think it kind of helped to build her fan base a little bit, virtually at least. So she started doing a series called Bedtime with Adron, which is an adorable name, right? And she would play late Friday nights and we'd all watch on Friday nights because we had nothing else to do. (laughs) So I feel like our relationship developed very naturally. And so she was one of the first people with her. I'm like, I'm going to try to ask her to come. Very, very cool. And I don't know what was the chicken and what was the egg in this situation, but now that she is taking the time, and I should mention, Adrian has moved to LA many years ago at this point, and she works for City Lights Long Distance, but Atlanta is still very much attached to her. And when she's coming in town for your festival, she's also going to be playing an event for WABE on Tuesday, the 8th, at our Sounds Like ATL City Winery event. So I don't know if we got Adron because you guys invited her or vice versa, but I feel like we had a team effort going on here. Absolutely. Indeed. So one of my favorite stories of people who have become part of your community is your ukulele player. Sylvia on the ukulele. She has been in Atlanta for 20 years. She grew up on a banana farm in Hawaii, but she learned to play ukulele in the South. And so she sounds like a blues player. It's a very nice uh, fusion of music. Cicada eyes like olives Stolen from the tree of knowledge Adam followed Madame Peeve She was cherry grenadine Fellini pink lemonade In my cicada serenade She had a ukulele and had played 
covers for many years, but had never written anything of her own. She saw Jeff Evans of Chickens and Pigs playing on Come On of My House, and she started to kind of interact with him, and he kind of became a mentor to her through that. He started listening to her stuff. He encouraged her to write originals, and she wrote her first original song with his help. It's actually a song that he wrote, I guess, the chorus to, and she wrote the verses to. And she performed that and has ever since been playing on Kimono My House. She's also been playing at local venues. And I mean, she says, if it wasn't for Kimono My House, I wouldn't be a performer. Amazing. Kim, one of the people on your schedule is someone that I'm not familiar with. I'm thinking they're probably not from Atlanta. Tell me about Daniel Gay. Yeah, Daniel is just an amazing musician. Um, He's a multi-instrumentalist. And he usually performs solo, but sometimes here, here lately he's been performing more and more with, with his kid, Sid, which is always just a joy to watch. He blew everybody away really quickly. Everyone's an island, an island with a bridge To an open field of poppies, choose to die or choose to live I mean, I think he probably started performing for the group. I would say it's been a little over a year ago. He's a virtuoso, but he's also so down to earth. He's so supportive of everybody else in the community. He's an outstanding piano player and um, guitar player as well. And it's just like, you just get sucked into what he's doing so quickly because it only takes a few seconds for you to see like, oh wow, this guy can play. That's fantastic. And he's traveling to Atlanta for the festival. Yeah, from Massachusetts. And so the young antiques are playing. I love them. Yeah, Uh, I mean, some people say that they're Americana. A lot of people sometimes compare them to the replacements. they're just really good songwriters and they have great stage presence and you know Blake and Blake the guitarist and the um, bass player have been friends I think since high school I'm very happy to have them as part of Kimono My House. Kim am I right that you actually moved away from Atlanta during the course of the pandemic and Kimono My House? I did I left Atlanta in June of 2020 moved back to North Carolina. What a way to stay in touch. Yeah it's been just that. I, I really can't imagine how homesick for Atlanta I would be. And I am anyway. I miss it terribly. But it definitely has helped. Fantastic. And so as far as the specs of the festival go, we're broken down over multiple days and multiple venues, right? So the venues are um, 529, Star Bar, Waller's Coffee Shop, and then back at 529 again. So 529 is on the first night, the Thursday, as well as the the Sunday. I'm not familiar with Waller's. Where is that? Yeah, Waller's is in Decatur. It's around like the the cab 
farmer's market area, like that side. It's it's newer. It's a wonderful, wonderful venue, and we were super excited to have a day there because they have a really great outdoor space also. So that enabled us mm. to start a little earlier, and it's almost like two venues in one. It's It's a great space. Thank you. You've just turned me and maybe some other City Lights listeners onto a venue I'd never heard great. of. Great. Within the course of your community building and people hopping on to play when they can, some people have taken even more ownership and developed their own weekly shows, right? Absolutely. Tom Cheshire and Lars Nagel have a show called BLT, which is very popular. They play every Wednesday and bring on other guests. At Waller's Coffee, we actually have what's called the BLT block, and it's you know all of the regulars on the BLT show playing together on the same stage. Which is amazing because these people, you know, even if they haven't met, you know, they're all friends. Atlanta musicians and founders of Kimono My House, Andy Gish and Kim Ware, speaking with City Light senior producer Kim Drobes. More information about next weekend's Kimono My House Music Festival can be found at kmhatl.com. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Monday at 11 a.m., it's New Music Monday. We'll hear about new releases from pianist Laura Downs, her Scott Joplin reflections, and... Atlanta Rabbi Michael Lapidus with Ebenezer Baptist Church soloist Melvin Kendall Miles. City Light senior producer is Kim Drobes. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. Thanks for listening to WABE. Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org donate and become a member right now. And thank you.